it's Lisa Cordoff. Welcome to the podcast where you can expect inspiring, raw, energizing, and transformative conversations with people on the path of personal evolution. I'm here to really live my life. And if you are too, these conversations are just for you. I'm really glad you're here. Enjoy. to this episode of the podcast that has probably been a long time coming, but like with all things, is happening at the perfect time. Oh gosh, I have been showing up on podcasts, on social media, blogs, webinars, in my programs, all sorts of things over the last seven years. And I've been doing it uh, despite my life (laughs) feeling pretty tricky a lot of times and I was dealing with something all those years that I felt I couldn't really talk about for lots of reasons that I'll probably explore during this series uh, where I'm going to be sharing the story so far. I can remember once just, I don't even know why I was Googling myself. I think I was trying to find an old picture and I put Lisa Cordoff into Google and the Google search suggestions were uh, Lisa Cordoff, husband death, Lisa Cordoff, how did Nick die, Lisa Cordoff, death, um, And I thought, wow, (laughs) people have a lot of questions or they're very curious about what happened to my, well, I call him my former husband because we were separated when he passed away. Um, And, you know, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of gaps in, in people's knowledge. And I felt absolutely no desire to, to share uh, what happened to him, mainly because we were all still getting our heads around it ourselves. Also because it's the nature of, of addiction to hide itself. It doesn't want to be known because while it isn't known, it can survive. And so there were lots of people in his world who who didn't know that he was dealing with, well, you know, there's lots of different names of it and he always really hated the term alcoholic. He hated the term, you know, addiction. We often referred to it as disordered drinking habits. Uh, but m- mostly most people know of alcoholism as as you know it's a it's it's an addiction to alcohol it your brain is operating in in different ways to normal people around a certain substance or thing and and the more i've learned the more i've realized we're all addicted to something i mean how happy would you be if i told you that you had to stop drinking coffee or stop like you literally would never able to touch chocolate or whatever it is that's your favorite thing again, you'd be a bit sad. And you'd struggle with it because we are habitual creatures, right? 
but I'm not going to get all technical about all that sort of stuff. I'm not going to get technical about where it all comes from, the role trauma plays in someone becoming something. His story is really his story and he's not here to tell it. And I've also struggled with telling my story without implicating him or making assumptions on his behalf because that didn't feel very fair either. The thing is, is that addiction is a family disease. Addiction impacts people around you. Our relationship dynamic was not healthy in the end. We could really see that. And it's a big part of the reason why we separated. Uh, Getting healthy, both him and I, required us to not be together. But I thought I would share a little bit about, about what was sort of, what was going on some of the the backstory, I guess, because the themes that I talk about, you'll be able to hear in this story. You'll probably maybe recognize yourself amongst some of the themes, even although you're not the wife of an alcoholic. And I'm sharing this story at this time now because I realize that the next phase of my life involves uh, more honesty, more acceptance of the shadows and the lights side of me, um, more ownership of, of my story and what I have lived through and doing it from the most honest place that I can so that I guess I can live my fullest expression. There's so many reasons why we keep ourselves, our stories hidden. And I get it. I don't I didn't I didn't feel like I owed all those people who were googling <laughs> my story, my very very personal story, anything. So in many ways I'm not doing this for you. <sighs> I'm doing this for me and and I don't know how it's all going to come out (laughs) but just bear with me. I thought we could maybe just talk about in this particular episode the period from maybe 2015 to 2019 Um, and I really, really want to preface this by saying that if you or someone you love is struggling with this particular issue right now, that there are phone numbers you can call. Lifeline is a really good one here in Australia. You might hear things in this episode that will trigger you. And so I want you to think responsibly about whether you want to listen. Because I know that for me, I have to be very, very protective of what I allow into my space because I have so much processing to do around all of this stuff and uh, the smallest things can set me off and it's my responsibility to manage my inputs and I just want to encourage you to take that same level of responsibility too. If you need help, 
there's a few uh, places that you can go that we'll add below the podcast notes. And I encourage you to do that. So (laughs) Nick and I got married in 2009 and it was so amazing. I mean, I was so in love with this human and we both were. I think people used to tell us all the time we were couple goals. We had a really, really close connection. I remember years after we started living together, still bounding up the stairs like to our apartment because I just literally couldn't wait to see him. He made my life interesting. He thought on a completely different level to me. He was so artistic, so curious, so you know, he was he was caring. He 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 cared more. If you got into a conversation with him, you would end up in places that you didn't really even recognize within yourself. I saw that he 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 did this to people all the time. They would just open up to him. He was a really safe space for a lot of people, and I felt so thrilled that we were together, and that I got to witness this human throughout his life. You know, we had children. We had children pretty fast. He was, he was just right in there, in the thick of it with the kids. Uh, you know, I never had to ask him to do stuff. It was just a, it was just a thing. He was, you know, if he was home, it was it was kids, and you know, bloody three children in under four years. Uh, what else were we going to be doing? <laughs> But, you know, like every couple, we struggled with just the monotony of afternoon naps and bedtimes and nappies and all of the things. But there was also this underlying thing that started to really appear and it really started to to feel strange to me. I think it was... It was really 2015, I remember we were down in in Melbourne, we were staying with my parents and very ironically, we went to a pub to have a chat. I mean, everyone could sort of see we weren't, we weren't the normal Nick and Lisa. I was really, really struggling with a few things and so was he and I remember sitting in that pub just saying, you know, I wanted him to to acknowledge that the drinking had become a problem. You know that that so much else was possible. That it felt like all the things that we were wanting for our lives, they were possible. But but the that his drinking was kind of getting in the way. And and this wasn't he. Let me just. He wasn't drinking spirits. He wasn't drinking during the day. It wasn't anything like that. This is why I, I literally had no idea why he was just choosing, would look to me like why he was just choosing to do this. And, and, and it felt like for someone who struggles a bit with anxiety and other things, why he was continuing to do the thing that, I mean, alcohol's a depressive and all of that sort of stuff. Why, why? I just, I didn't understand. And I, I needed him to acknowledge that it was the problem. And, and looking back now, I can see absolutely that I, for years and years, I was, I was being lied to. I was being gaslit, and it wasn't intentional on his behalf. It was, it was desperate. He didn't want to this to be a thing, 
Uh, he didn't want me to know that, you know, he thought about alcohol a lot of the time. And we sat there and and I just, I was so immensely frustrated. I didn't, I didn't understand what was happening. I have absolutely no background of this in my life. I don't have any other examples of this. You know, uh, my parents have a drink every day. And so all those little uh, arguments for why this wasn't actually a problem would come up time and time and time again. Everybody has a glass or two of wine. I felt like I was the nagging wife. I can see now I absolutely knew there was a problem, but I didn't trust myself to really push it. But then, you know, I can remember it was 2016 and we were living in Brisbane at this time and I can remember an afternoon the kids had gotten up from their sleep. So it was sort of early afternoon the kids were all young, so my youngest would have been two. Eldest was six. And and I was just trying to have a little lie down. And um and I could hear from the way he was playing with them that he'd he'd been drinking. And I just cried and cried and cried on my bed out of frustration. And just sort of disbelief. I didn't, you know, why would he choose to do that on a on a Sunday afternoon? And so this is the thing about disordered drinking is it's progressive. It doesn't start off like that. It's like for me it felt like that analogy of, of the frog in the boiling water. And you just don't really realise it's starting to boil until it's really hot. And there were all these little signs that I can now see looking back over the years and that he shared with me through the process of recovery. It's a really important thing to share with people. Um, And I found that very confronting because I had absolutely no idea what was going on. And I had actually thought that you couldn't get closer (laughs) to another human than Nick and I were to each other. Hmm. I was wrong on that. And then, and then in 2017, things really ramped up. Uh, I remember, uh, taking a trip to New York city and the morning that I was meant to go, he had his very first appointment with a psychiatrist. So he'd always, you know, he'd seen all sorts of therapists over the years, but he was really getting to a stage where things felt unmanageable for him uh, with his his mental health. And so we thought, okay, maybe it's time to get a little bit of help with anxiety and those sorts of things. Um, there's other options out there. Let's try this route. It was someone that his psychologist had recommended that he sees. And he sat in the waiting room and and the guy didn't appear. And and he called me at the airport and he said, he's apparently he's not back from, from overseas. So I sat there and waited and they told me that he should be getting there and he just didn't. So 
I've left. And I had a real sinking feeling in, in my tummy. And we had someone else staying with us at the time who uh, was helping him take care of the kids very generously. Uh, and and I thought, okay, well, he's got back up. It's a few days. I'm going to be, I'm literally going to be home in a few days. And he was, he reassured me that he was fine and that I should go because, of course, I was thinking I should just pull the pin and just stay at home. But he would be fine. We'd set up, you know, back up for him and, you know, what was a few days. But then, uh, you know, things really spiraled out of control. Um, And, you know, he didn't sleep for a few days and it turned out my sister had to fly up and help him out because he just wasn't, he wasn't okay. And so I then flew home from New York and so began just a very, very different stage of our lives. You know, it was, he, he, he broke, he sort of had a breakdown of sorts and, and I really couldn't, it couldn't be ignored anymore. What was, what was going on? And it was the first time that really he had been, it had been said to him that he really needed to start to manage his drinking and something that they start to do is, you know, getting you to self-manage yourself and just give that a try, uh, which I found excruciating because I thought the problem is that he can't. Why are you telling him to do something that he can't? But a lot of this, the journey is is allowing that person to come to the conclusions that they they that they need help. Um, that what they're doing is not sustainable, and and yeah, that is a that is a whole thing in an in itself. Um, but ultimately, what happened was that he, I mean, he was uh, medicated for the first time, so he'd never been on on any type of medication, and uh, that had its own side effects, big ones. And he started on on the path of of really recognizing that he was going to have to stop drinking. And the few months that you know since I got home from New York and he needed to take a break from work, so he stopped working at that point. They were really, really hard. I mean, I felt like my world was spinning out of control because he, he was out of control. He he didn't know what was happening. Neither of us wanted to be where we were. He'd been holding on and holding on for so long. And, and suddenly he couldn't. And there was months uh, of trying to, you know, just get him back to base, but it didn't nothing was helping and he had his first period in rehab in I think it was July 2017 and that was on the back of a a big time escalation of things and you know some time in hospital 
and bits and pieces. Like when I'm talking, I, I, I had no idea what, what was happening. Uh, it was just it was just a really, really shocking time. It felt like I couldn't even stand up before another wave would hit me. And yet <laughs> I kept going. And this is a theme I'm going to be exploring too is over-functioning. I, I, I mean, I, I, the night before his first stint in, in rehab, after a, a hospital visit the night before, I delivered a webinar to launch my brand new program, Small Steps Back to You. <laughs> and this program uh, Nick had actually contributed to, we did a Back to You for Blokes. So, because this is a thing, he was he was really, really trying all this time to figure himself out, to get beyond where he was. And so he was doing lots of uh, personal development, growth sort of stuff, learning and understanding so much more about where this all comes from. And because a huge part of the issue is a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. And uh, I was always trying to just diminish that because I don't see, I didn't see this as a character flaw. I saw this as a result of other things. Uh, he was always lovingly embraced, which can also be seen as enabling by some, but anyway, that's a whole nother story too. But I, I ran this webinar and my, my mum was there she'd come up to help with the kids because I ran this webinar and the next morning uh, it was it was our most successful launch <laughs> and then the next morning I had to to take my husband to rehab like what what is going on and when I dropped him there I had to get on a get on a train and head down to the Gold Coast so mum was staying with the kids and run a two-day two mastermind retreat for women in online business. <laughs> what? And then I had to go home and I had to finish the launch of this program and see, like visit Nick. He wasn't allowed visitors for the first little while. It was three and a half weeks. And in that time, I decided that we were going to move to Melbourne, that I couldn't do this without my family. I also went over in that three and a half weeks to uh, Laguna Beach in California <laughs> for a mastermind event. I mean, my parents, to say that they have supported me and Nick and our children so much is just the biggest understatement. Whew. They knew how important it was for me to sort of get a hit of something that made me feel good at that time and so they allowed that, they facilitated that. And, um, and we packed up the house. They drove our car down. And we moved in, well, I moved in with them, with the kids. Nick did another three weeks at a place down here in Melbourne and 
And I set about trying to find us a place to live. So this was at a time where, <laughs> I mean, I was, I was running the Back to You program for the first time. I did an event with the amazing Jude Blarow here in Melbourne and my life had literally turned upside down. And I remember being at one of the sessions for family and friends, for people who were, you know, in this particular hospital doing this particular program and and the guy who was running it said, how are you, Lisa? <laughs> and I said, oh, look, I'm just really pleased that he's here. He seems to be responding really well. Once he decides he wants to do something, he does it. He's a really committed guy. I just feel he's like, no, Lisa, <laughs> I'm asking you how you are. And I didn't really understand the question. I, I drew a blank. Uh, I was like, um, I don't, I'm, I'm just grateful. Uh, you know, Lisa, how are you? And he just pushed me on it and I absolutely broke down. And this is where I might, this is where you might feel like you know this feeling. Like when was the last time someone deeply cared and deeply asked you how you are? Have you given yourself permission to think about how you are? Someone looked you in the eyes and was like, give it to me point blank. How are you? What would you say? Are you even honest with yourself about how you are? I certainly was not being honest with myself. I didn't even know I got to have a say in how I felt at that time. And this is why I talk to women about taking responsibility for how they feel, for, for owning that stuff, for listening to themselves more. Because we're so out of tune with ourselves sometimes. I know I was in those heightened moments when it feels like life is for everybody else. You know, where, where are you in amongst all that? How are you? And so that was, that was, that was a moment. And, you know, on the back of that, there were lots of other moments. I mean, I 100% believed that they tell you all sorts of statistics about the likelihood of sobriety, ongoing sobriety. I mean, I have so much respect for, for people in recovery. It is the hardest. It is so hard. And you think about, I mean, I remember times, I remember Father's Day and Nick was sober and every ad on the radio or yeah, every shop front there was just signs pointing to booze. The dad's WhatsApp group at the local school was, you know, uh, a, a pub crawl, Father's Day pub crawl. It's so hard to be sober. <sighs> anyway, 
so I remember, I mean, it was, but I, I really truly believed he was going to be one of the 5%. I used to call him a 5%. I, I held that vision for him. I held it for all of us. And I believed he would get there. I, did, I believed it would take time and it wouldn't, you know, be an instant process, but I never, ever stopped believing. But what ended up happening was that that belief took over my life, that I built everything around his sobriety. I would think about my daily movements in terms of whether that was what he he needed. I managed myself in order to fix him. And uh, this is codependence and something that I'll explore in one of the next episodes. But I think we both, we, we, we had created this dynamic over the years and uh, it, was, it was not healthy. I didn't see it at the time. I had no idea at the time what I, was, what I was doing, how the way I was operating was enabling things for him, how I was putting myself just dead last all the time, every single day. Like literally I still cannot put myself back to sleep because if I wake up early in the morning because my body remembers the fear, the like spike of adrenaline every time I would roll over and just think, how are we going to do today? How are we going to get through today? What's he like today? Um, how did he sleep? You know, it was just, uh, I was just on, I was in a heightened state for years, <sighs> years and years and years. I remember though, and I think I've shared this story before. Oh, I definitely shared it inside my programs when I got shingles after we'd finally found a place to live. It took about five weeks staying at mum and dad's and we moved in and I got a child set up at daycare, a child at kindergarten and a child into school and all of the things um, that had to be done to set up a house. Uh and and then a few months later, just I got this rush on my face, and I thought I was I thought it was school sauce. <laughs> so I was putting stuff on it for that that I'd needed for one of my kids back in Brisbane that was essentially burning my shingles. So that was good. Don't do that. Uh, I went to the doctors, and he said this is shingles, and I spent about two weeks mostly in bed. And my body just was like, nah, we're not doing this anymore. And I and I was talking to my mentor at the time and and I said, I just I can't I can't get things done. I'm so stressed out. Like I every like everything's on me. That's what I was saying. Everything's everything relies on me. And if I'm not well, everything falls down. I can't afford to feel sick. I can't afford this. Like it's not good for any of us for me to feel like this. And he said, Lisa, you're not taking any responsibility for yourself here. And I wanted to smash his face in. But what he was essentially saying was, you gotta, you got to take care of yourself 
And no one's going to do that for you. You're going to have to find ways to be healthy amongst all of this. You're the one making everything on you. And for sure, when you've got children and they need you in new ways, and I mean, everyone's emotions were big. There was a lot of change happening in a really short amount of time for my little people. And I wanted to be present with them for that. I needed to continue working so that we could keep living. But my work was actually the thing that was sustaining me in lots and lots of ways. It was like my escape. And I'm so grateful for it. I'm grateful to you if you've been listening all these years for for joining in things, for opening emails and commenting on, on Facebook posts or joining programs. You've sustained me. And I really, really mean that. Uh, but also I knew that, I mean, I was doing so much work on myself at this point, so much work to understand myself uh, in this new changing reality that I'd found myself in. I was really trying to figure out how to be okay amongst what was complete and utter devastating <laughs> chaos. And, you know, really interesting people crossed my paths over the past few years. And I'm so grateful for them. I'm so grateful for the ways that I've explored myself, brains, feelings, all of that sort of stuff. Because after it was the end of 2019, Oh, things were just up and down. It just that that recovery process of sobriety and relapse is is really full on. Everything was fine, then everything just totally wasn't, and and it was always really quite. I mean, it, spectacular is not the right word, but if you get what I'm saying, it was it got bigger and more confronting and more intense every time. And this is not unusual. This is like he was basically, it's like a script. And and it was the end of 2018 that he did a, a stint in a, well, what I thought was an amazing place on the Sunshine Coast that, well, I mean, I'm not going to share personal opinions on this stuff, but uh he wasn't okay afterwards but he felt his best and uh, he ended our marriage in January 2019 um and was looking to move out we both knew I mean it was awful because I still believed (laughs) after all this I still I was you know I was in it um and and this was my next phase of doing anything that was required in order to be able to have him healthy and well. It was all any of us around him wanted. Uh, and so, you know, the idea was for him to find a place and um, I would stay I would stay here with the children. But then, then there was another relapse and it wasn't good and we knew that we had to find a different um, solution to just a you know couple of weeks stint 
in rehab. I mean, if anyone has helped, I mean, I, I have a lot of opinions also on the way in which the system is kind of rigged against people succeeding in this stuff, but it's also all you have. Um, it's an awful predicament to be in. It's I've never felt more out of my depth uh, and without a plan or without knowing what was the right move to make. But he was very intent on getting to India and he had tickets booked for February, but he was in full-blown relapse and he needed help really badly. Uh, and so we ended up convincing him that he needed a six-month stint somewhere uh, and we found a place that we thought would be great for him and he agreed to postpone his India trip until he was finished this six months. He said he'd do it if he could get to India. He just wanted to go there. He wanted to meditate. He wanted to find peace. He wanted to go to an ashram and and just be with himself amongst something that felt peaceful. In his mind, that was going to be a solution for him. Um, so, you know, when I, when it was, it was, you know, I was talking to him, they tell you don't make any sudden moves and I, I kept on, in terms of big life changes or anything like that when they enter these programs and, but I, I sort of knew that it was already over for us even although I had stepped in and done, you know, we had to, to get him through that period but something happened to me that I just knew I was, that it was it was done and I desperately needed to focus on myself and my own healing while he was safe and taken care of. And and so began my life not as Nick's wife or, or partner. We'd been together for 16 years. Uh, and I think that's where I will leave the story today. <laughs> There's more to come, obviously. Um, that was February 2019 and... And it began my my solo parenting journey. I really went from um, it was just it was the kids and I, and he was able to see them. But suddenly, I was like, <laughs> I was in a totally new place. So I didn't I didn't feel good in myself. I was not I was not okay by any means. Um, but when you've got three children and a business, you find ways. And I think that's what we will talk about next time. So today I didn't even cover his um, his death that happened later that year in India. But let's stay tuned. This was enough talking for today. <laughs> this is enough of the story so far. And as I said, it's a way for me to share, I mean, really, it's a, very high level overview but I think just um, it's not something that's unusual for me to share because I share so much in my personal life and um, and people understand these things but 
In terms of who I am here online, there's got to be less of a divide or there's got to be less of a uh, gap. And in no part of the story does there exist any shame. I wasn't able to talk to people about this for the longest time. You know, lying on my bed back in 2016, crying in the afternoon, I couldn't tell anyone because I wasn't allowed. He didn't want anyone to know. And I can see now that is, that's addiction in play. It likes to stay hidden, as I said earlier. And are there things that I would do differently knowing what I know now? Absolutely. But was I trying my best every single step of the way with what I knew? Yeah, (laughs) every day. I could not have tried harder to understand or to love. But addiction is cruel. It is cruel and it does not make any sense. It's not logical. And I'm, and so in the next episode, I'll explore what happened since then. So more of my personal journey of parenting, of navigating his death. And then there's going to be some big issues that I explore, big stories amongst the story and, and themes. So once this is said, you can really see where a lot of what I teach, where it's coming from, why I picked it up along the way, how I share because if it helped me, it might help someone else and really nothing more. I don't see myself as a guru or thought leader or anything like that. Just a woman navigating life. And I think that there's so many women like me who are navigating even this particular path silently. I have never felt more alone than realising that, you know, well, just living what I was living because it feels like, well, it, yeah, I, I, I didn't know how to talk to people about it. I didn't know how to admit it to myself, all the things. So if you're experiencing this, you're not alone. And I hope that you enjoy the next part of the story, even although in terms of his life, the story had the worst ending, the one that we were all trying to stop all that time. But how you can go on despite it all. And I hope that his particular journey is not something that any of you experience with a loved one. Uh but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep sharing because it's important for me as a woman to have my story said. Whether you judge, <laughs> accept, it's okay. It doesn't bother me. Uh, 
I'll see you in the next episode. We'll talk about the next stage. How about that? See you then. Before you go, if you are like most people, then you want to create some positive changes in your life and you might have tried this before and things haven't quite worked out. Well, I want you to know I've created a brand new free workshop for you that's going to help you with the self-defeating stories that just get in the freaking way of you creating what you want in your life. I am sure that when you watch this workshop, you will absolutely see that some of the reasons that you've been telling yourself you can't have what you want might not be true. Just going to put that out there, get access via the link in the show notes and start watching this powerful workshop straight away so that you can stop waiting for permission. You can stop waiting for everything around you to be perfect before you take action and you can get out of your own sweet way and start creating what you want in your life. Enjoy it. Hey, if you're enjoying the conversation, then it would mean the world to me if you head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. It really makes a difference and it's my intention to get as many of us involved in real conversations that really change the game as possible. Thanks so much for your help and I'll see you in the next episode. 